This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. My name is Bob Berg. I'm the chief of the Division of Critical Care Medicine at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I've been asked to to, uh, make some comments about Jack, given my personal experience with Jack and my professional experience in being one of uh, a series of people running the pediatric ICU that he founded in 1967. On December 17th, 2021, Jack Downs passed away and we lost a foundational leader in our field of pediatric critical care medicine, a friend, a colleague, and a mentor to so many of us. Jack is and was a trailblazing giant in the fields of anesthesiology and critical care medicine for more than a half a century. A visionary pioneer, a master clinician, a dedicated, rigorous educator, an inspirational leader, a force, and yet a true gentleman. Jack came to the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in 1963. And at the time, he was a a young NIH-funded research fellow uh, looking at uh, some physiology and some information about blood gases and pulmonary physiology of uh, sick children with neonatologists and physiologists. When he was uh, tapped by his mentor uh, and his, uh, his chief of anesthesiology, Len Bachman, who had a dream of having a, a starting a PICU to provide care like it was done for neonates for the older children that have uh, surgical and medical illnesses. And along in the early 1967, Len Bachman, and C. Everett Koop, the surgeon-in-chief at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who later became a Surgeon General for the United States, turned to Jack and said, we need to have a PICU. We have big operations. We have sick children. We need to do something. In typical fashion of Jack, he looked into what there was and what there could be and realized that there were no PICUs in North America. He therefore turned to his neonatal colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania to learn more about how they developed a formal neonatal intensive care unit, what it means to be formal in terms of uh, rigorous policies and procedures, 24-7 coverage of physicians, 24-7 coverage of nurses, et cetera, et cetera, as uh, Jack would say, quote unquote, and so on and so forth. There were some PICUs in uh, that had just started in Europe that were not in the UK at the time. And he went to Sweden and to Germany, came on back, developed in his classic rigorous formal approach, partnerships with business and nursing colleagues at the Children's uh, Hospital of Philadelphia, found a place to put the, the unit and developed it and started in 1967. So in the 1960s, much of the medical care was provided by residents and house officers. So it was natural that Jack incorporated the training of future pediatric critical care medicine clinicians as part of the initial unit. They had 24-7 coverage by both uh, residents, anesthesiology residents and pediatric anesthesiology residents. Um, And they also had, uh, when he um, brought in new faculty members to to become uh, leaders in this unit with them. Not surprisingly, This soon-to-be iconic pediatric critical care training program 
went on to teach many of the future leaders in North America and internationally uh, in our field of pediatric critical care medicine. Jack and his colleagues inspired and trained multiple generations of pediatric anesthesiologists and intensivists, and they set the standard of care and professionalism that will endure far into the future. Jack was also a tireless advocate for improving healthcare for children. Uh, and initially starting a unit, of course, was, was a, a major effort. He also uh, got, gathered together with his friends at uh, Mass General, at uh, Sick Children's, at Pittsburgh, and other institutions to start pediatric intensive care units in each of those places over the next several years. Soon after he started ICU, they started to have survivors. Within several years, Jack realized that we have patients who are surviving, we don't have any place to send them, that are surviving yet have technology dependence. And amazingly, in the early 1970s, Jack worked with the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to fund a pioneering home care program for the care of technology dependent children and brought in new faculty members to lead that program. Jack was in fact an amazing visionary leader. When Jack refers to how he, how he did this, he often reminisced, quote, I held on sometimes by my fingernails until, until others fell away. And even if it took several years and then he would pound his fist onto the ground and say, uh, to make it clear that he was emphatic in his dedication to these patients. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Jack's passion and advocacy for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He focused heavily on, uh, and, on, on uh, leadership at CHOP and he was um, a medical staff leader for many years. And, and the reason for that is because CHOP was dedicated to advancing the state of the art, clinical care, cutting edge with discovery and rigorous interdisciplinary training to optimize outcomes for ill and injured children. To Jack, it was so important that the focus was on the patient, the children, their families, rather than on the providers who had a moral calling to take care of these children. In many ways, Jack was ahead of his time in terms of uh, issues that we talk about in healthcare today. He will always be remembered by all of his trainees for his steadfast devotion to his patients. He worked hard to make sure that every child had access to the best care possible, no matter what their background, disability, or ability to pay. He approached medicine as a moral calling and therefore was an inspiration to all of us who had similar inclinations. You will see in, the, in a, um, after this uh, brief introduction, a, a discussion by Jack about the history of medicine. And late in his career, he became an avid student of medicine and actually uh, had further graduate studies uh, in that area um, where um, uh, he focused on what was the past so that we can learn on how we can do a better job in the future. His learned presentations on the history of pediatric anesthesiology and critical care were a special treasure to, for trainees and faculty alike. He taught us the value of strategic vision dedication, and critically reflecting on our practice today to continuously learn and provide better care tomorrow. On a personal note, 
When I came to CHOP 14 years ago, Jack was 78 years old and retired. I knew who he was, but I didn't really know him as a person. Jack may have been retired, but he was still a force. He was a regular participant in every pediatric and anesthesia grand rounds. And at the end, he always had um, insightful comments and concerning questions for the uh, pr pr provider of the lecture who tried to, to uh, come up with reasonable answers to his difficult questions. But for me, within the first week that I was at CHOP, he quickly made me feel like I was a lifelong partner. It was quite remarkable. What a thrill, what an experience for me. I was just so impressed that uh, with his reaching out to me and that it took me a little while to realize that's how he was for everybody. Everybody was his friend, his colleague, and he didn't see himself as a mentor. He saw himself as a colleague and in so doing, he was a mentor. Whether you knew Jack at CHOP, whether you were trained by Jack, whether you knew him in other meetings, all of us knew that those of us who were lucky enough to work with him or just beat him will always remember his genuine curiosity, his sincere humanity, his keen insight, and his steadfast devotion to patients, colleagues, and his family. We are privileged to remember the, the beautiful moments we experienced with him and how those moments will continue to influence us and make us better healthcare providers and better people. I think many people like me look back and are so thankful to know Jack as a friend, a colleague, and a mentor. I hope you enjoy the presentation by Jack that follows. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Jack Downs. Dr. Downs is the Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics and Anesthesia at the University of Pennsylvania. But perhaps more importantly, Dr. Downs and his colleagues founded the first pediatric intensive care unit in the United States in 1967. In 1972, he was named Chair of Anesthesia and Critical Care at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a position he held until 1996. Since that time, Dr. Downs has been active in care of children with chronic mechanical ventilatory needs, and we're very pleased to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Downs, it's a, a pleasure to have you with us today. You're literally one of the founders of our field of pediatric critical care in the United States. and. Um, I know you were early on involved in research. You had NIH grants in 1964 to study respiratory failure in infants and children. But of course, the story goes back longer than that. And you're known throughout the United States for giving a wonderful talk on the perspective of child health and where pediatric hospitals came from. Where, do you, where does the story begin? And how would you describe the major advances that got us here? Later in my career, I acquired a intense interest in history, and particularly the history of medicine. And I had the opportunity to take courses with a professor, Jonathan Steinberg, at the University of Pennsylvania. And he had a saying, history is not the past, 
but thinking about the past in order to better understand the present. And I must say that in my explorations of how we got here, uh, I have, I think, acquired a better understanding of my own career and of our field of pediatric critical care than I would have had did I not explore its origins. Now, I take a particular view that uh, based on my readings and talking to scholars, that there are three major uh, origins that had to be addressed without, the, without which we would not have developed pediatric critical care. But in fact, I think before we even go to that, it's good to remember that only 170 years ago, which isn't that long ago, 20% uh, of infants never saw their first birthday in the cities, and probably it was worse in the countryside. And older children had a high mortality. In some studies, 25% uh, of children who got out of the first year didn't survive to become adults. So it was an appalling death rate. And if you look in cemeteries from back in the mid-19th century, you see how many children are buried there. Uh, also, there was no reliable anesthesia. There was no surgical asepsis. There was very poor knowledge of hygiene and no immunization except for smallpox. And then some very important things happened that, in fact, have influenced our medicine today. And those three things, in my view, were the discovery of anesthesia, uh, first by Crawford Long in 1842 down in Georgia, but he didn't publish about it. So it went virtually unknown until he wrote about it in, uh, at the end of the 1840s. And the demonstration of the efficacy of ether anesthesia by Thomas Morton at the Mass General Hospital on October 16, 1846. A landmark achievement because that opened the door really for modern surgery. The second major contribution in my view was nursing care. Nursing care as a profession. And that we can thank Florence Nightingale for, an aristocratic lady uh, born to wealth and privilege who dedicated her life to helping her fellow man. And she established uh, the efficacy of hygiene, of careful studies of outcomes, and of the humane care of individuals who were severely injured. When she was the head of nursing, at a military hospital, there had not been nurses at military hospitals down in the Crimea during the Crimean War. And she lowered the mortality rate at the hospital, the British hospital in Scutari, Turkey, from over 40% to 2% in six months and demonstrated the efficacy of cleanliness and compassion. By the way, she set up the first nursing school in the Western world at least, at St. Thomas Hospital in London. And that's where our American 
founder of nursing, modern nursing, Clara Barton trained and then brought those skills back to America. And the third important thing was an appreciation of asepsis. And this followed shortly in the 1860s based on the work of Joseph Lister, a London-trained surgeon who was in Glasgow, who read the papers of Pasteur, began to understand the impact of bacteria on in the likelihood that it was linked to infection. Lister is one of the first people to link bacteria to infection. And the fact that infection of a wound and laudable pus was not part of natural healing. And he used carbolic acid to clean up wounds. He sprayed carbolic acid over the operative field when he was operating, which must have been a bit horrific for his assistants and for the anesthetist. But he demonstrated very clearly the superior outcome of his patients compared to patients on other wards in his hospital in Glasgow. And he wrote about this in The Lancet around 1866. And he was at an exhibit to demonstrate the efficacy of asepsis at our bicentennial in 1876. But we Americans were very slow to pick up on this. And uh, the leading surgeon in Philadelphia, where I'm from, said this was a lot of humbug. Uh, however, uh, that was Gross, who was at Jefferson. The surgeon at Penn, my university, was D. Hayes Agnew, said, I don't think so. I think the guy's on to something, and started. And pretty soon it was very clear the young surgeons clamored to be with Agnew because his results were so much better due to asepsis. Well, those three things led to the beginning of, in my view, modern medicine and surgery. Now, what about children? Back in the 19th century, the idea that children had rights was not generally appreciated. The children of the rich had rights, but the children of the poor were really expendable. The, the poor didn't have very many rights, and their children certainly didn't have rights. And there was a man who promoted that concept. And he was a German-Jewish immigrant from Berlin via London who came to America really as a political refugee, a socialist by the name of Abraham Jacobi, a diminutive figure physically, but a giant in personality and intellect. And he advocated for the rights of children as human beings, as uh, right, have as much right to life as an adult. He advocated for clean conditions for them to live, having clean milk and water. He advocated for cleanliness in the tenements, particularly in the Lower East Side of New York. He was in New York City. And he would push and push and push and get his way. He was a persistent uh, individual without being righteous and without alienating people. And he also was the first professor of pediatrics at Columbia. They had a, 
a title professor of child health and pathology, something like that. He also established a children's hospital at Mount Sinai Hospital, a children's wing at Mount Sinai Hospital, and advocated for similar wings or separate hospitals in New York City, some of which got built and have since disappeared. And he uh, became president of the recalcitrant conservative AMA when he was 82 years old in 1912. Uh, the first immigrant to be hold such a position, the first Jew to hold such a position. Uh, a powerful man for whom uh, uh, the child was a wonderful human being with all the rights and privileges that he had. Uh, he was married to a dynamo, Mary Putnam, who was also a pediatrician. And I just wish I could walk back to New York City in the 1890s and meet them. <laughs> um, but then there was another thing. He advocated for hospitals for children and the idea of cohorting sick children into a clean environment, get them out of the, particularly the poor children. The wealthy children could be cared for at home. The poor children and even the middle-class children often lived in very unsanitary conditions. Get them into a hospital, give them clean water, bathe them, give them pure milk, have a hygienic environment, and treat them with compassion. And that was his motto. And indeed, children's hospitals emerged in New York. A trio of physicians in Philadelphia had the same concept. I don't know if they were in touch with Jacoby or not. They may have been, because they were contemporaries. Uh, doctors Lewis Bache and Penrose, they're Penn graduates, who went to London and saw the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, which began around 1850, and were impressed that this was the way to care for children. They came back to Philadelphia and established a 12-bed hospital with donations from their friends and uh, some wealthy individuals uh, in Center City, Philadelphia, buildings that no longer exist. They're just a couple of row houses, had 12 beds in an, what they called an outpatient dispensary. It was strictly for the poor and strictly charity care, no, no fees. Uh, ten years later, they built a hospital that uh, was a magnificent state-of-the-art hospital, as modern as anything in the Western world, uh, at 22nd and Locust Streets in Philadelphia. The building no longer stands, but it, uh, it stood from, 19, from 1865 to 1922. And it was a 76-bed hospital which made it large for a children's hospital at that time. And it had an operating room and an emergency take-in admission room and it had a large outpatient clinic, uh, accomplished some wonderful things. It even had a forerunner of the ICU uh, with a lot of sunlight, a beautiful room with plenty of nursing staff 
clean linens, instead of a TV, a piano. Uh, I wish they had that today. But uh, it, I've read the annual reports from, from the beginning, from 1855, and they accomplished some outstanding work. There was a lot of infectious disease. Again, we didn't have immunization, modern immunization. So uh, diphtheria, typhoid, chicken pox, measles, were at times devastating diseases, whooping cough. Uh, but uh, children got the best care that was available at the time at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. In 1869, the Children's Hospital of Boston, to my knowledge, that was the second American Children's Hospital open with a very similar philosophy. I think they had 20 beds initially and quickly expanded. So uh, this whole concept that we would treat children differently than adults was fairly unique, I think, to a certain cohort of physicians, nurses, and parents. Uh, it clearly was successful. Uh, in Europe, in Paris particularly, at the Charity Hospital, there emerged at this same time, the 1880s, 1890s, uh, the first real neonatal intensive care unit. Uh, Paul Tarnier was an obstetrician, now he would be called a perinatologist, invented an incubator. He was raised on a farm, and they had incubators for chicks. And he thought, wait a minute, premature babies are like chicks, and they need to be kept warm. And he invented a water-heated incubator, that, and his principal student was a man by the name of Pierre Boudin, B-U-D-I-N, who uh, perfected this device so that it was more practical for use in a hospital setting. And together they opened an, a literally a 20-bed infant intensive care unit in 1892 at the Charity Hospital, which was mainly an obstetrical hospital in Paris. And they used cabbage feeding with tubes I don't know what the tubes were made out of. I don't think latex rubber tubes were invented yet. But they got tubes into the stomach through the esophagus, and they fed breast milk. They had wet nurses providing breast milk for these babies. They, had, they practiced asepsis. <clears throat> they had learned from Florence Nightingale and from Lister uh, the importance of having an as clean an environment as possible. And uh, they lowered the mortality <clears throat> in the space of a few years in this cohort of preterm babies from nearly 200 per thousand live births to 40 per thousand live births. So that's live premature births. So that was a pretty amazing achievement. Uh, and then as a result of that, in the early 1900s, there were premature units in the United States, and they really were essentially intensive care units. Uh, a physician named Hess at a very fine unit at Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago, and there were other similar units around the country. So 
the concept of cohorting the sickest and the most vulnerable was established at that time, not just bringing children into the same building, but cohorting them in the same unit. Now, with all of this, the child could, in, in the, if you look at infant mortality rates, you look at child mortality rates, they are plummeting in the early 1900s. However, a disease emerged, poliomyelitis, did not strike down huge numbers, but it struck down enough that every parent was terrified for their child in the summer for reasons that became clear only much later. Uh, it was more a late spring through early fall to, to, uh, onset, but it had devastating consequences, particularly bulbar polio, which affected the cranial nerves and uh, led to respiratory failure. The thing that is impressive to me is that a pediatrician, Charles McCann, got together with an engineer, Philip Drinker, to solve this problem by creating a negative pressure ventilator that later became known as the iron lung. Access to the upper airway was privileged <laughs> territory, if you will, for the occasional anesthetist who most patients were anesthetized without endotracheal tubes or the ENT surgeon. Um, tubes were put in for thoracic surgery, but for most general surgery, even neurosurgery, patients weren't intubated because there was this fear of damaging the larynx. And with somewhat good reason, because the tubes were made of rubber that had stabilizers that leached out and damaged the larynx. So there was a reason not to excess, access the airway from above but rather to do a tracheotomy. So the iron lung was invented in the mid to late 20s here at Harvard and uh, employed at Children's Hospital of Boston. And the first patient was a little eight-year-old girl who, who uh, was in uh, CO2 narcosis probably, uh, and woke up when ventilated and asked for ice cream. And Mark Rockoff, your colleague, was telling me about that story. I'd forgotten. I had heard that and I'd forgotten it. But a dramatic change. However, the mortality was still reasonably high, but it wasn't 100%, which is what it was without that. The invention of the iron lung uh, was a leap forward in really the development of respiratory care and intensive care because very quickly the first respiratory intensive care units evolved and one of them, if not the first, was right here at Children's Hospital of Boston, a four-patient room which was under negative pressure with the heads of the patients in a separate room. So it was a means of accommodating four patients at one time. Uh, the limitations of that are that patients may need different degrees of negative pressure depending on their size and the stiffness of their lung and so forth. But anyway, it was a, the, the children were cohorted 
and that was a step forward. And very shortly, there were polio units uh, incorporating both adult and uh, pediatric iron lungs. The iron lungs being made not exclusively, but mostly by Emerson Company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the uh, unit that I personally got to see was similar to the unit that was pictured in a, not too many years ago, the unit at LA County Hospital, which had a tremendous number. It was the biggest one in the country, if not the world. And it showed several of the problems. One, infants, children, and adults were, were side by side. The children did not get any particularly special care devoted to children. There was a shortage of nurses and doctors. Respiratory therapists, there were some technicians around, but the respiratory therapy hadn't been invented yet <laughs> as, a, as a, an allied medical field. And the mortality was pretty significant. It depends on who you read. But uh, over 50% of these patients would die, in, uh, mostly of pneumonia because of the fact that they were lying on their backs and it was very difficult. Some of them would die of unrecognized uh, dislodgement of the tracheotomy tube or occlusion of the tracheotomy tube. Uh, the uh, monitoring systems were the nurse. There was no electronic monitoring. Uh, it was the nurse's eyes and ears and the patients couldn't, if they were this severely ill, they were in iron lung, they couldn't ring a buzzer or do anything to alert people. It must have been pretty awful for the patient. Mm -hmm. um, but I had the opportunity <clears throat> to go into the polio unit at Cook County Hospital, which is smaller than the one at L.A. County, but it was still about 20 patients, and see, I spent a an elective month in my senior year of medical school there, as I went to medical school at Loyola University, which at the time was, uh, the medical school was located across the street from Cook County Hospital. And that was the polio, major polio unit for Chicago. Uh, not the only one, but it was the major one. And uh, I got to see the complexity and yet the remarkable uh, re recovery. Sometimes the patients came out of the, recovered some of their capacity to breathe, and it, or at least could come out for a few hours a day. Um, but they were generally patients with bulbar polio were left with devastating disabilities, uh, as far as their the rest of their body was concerned. <clears throat> but these were. Specialized units, the mortality continued to decline despite the fact that it was cumbersome. And then we got the news from Europe. And in 1952, uh, there was a devastating polio epidemic in Scandinavia. And the uh, hospital in Copenhagen, uh, the Infectious Disease Hospital in Copenhagen had a very uh, fine medical staff. An internist that we would call an infectious disease doctor today, Hans Lassen, a uh, 
internist who was also a biochemist, Paul Astrup, who uh, measured blood gas and developed a microtechnique for measuring blood gases. In fact, at Children's Hospital, right after I joined the staff in 63, we bought an Astrup unit to measure blood gases. Um, and an anesthesiologist born Ibsen. They had set up a polio unit, and they had more patients than they had iron lungs. So what Ibsen and Lassen decided to do was to do a tracheotomy and then ventilate these patients the way patients were ventilated in the operating room, with positive pressure, manual ventilation, a CO2 absorber with soda lime, and manual ventilation by medical students, nurses, residents, whomever they could get in two-hour shifts 24-7. And the patients who were ventilated in this manner were turned every couple of hours, their chests were percussed, they were suctioned more regularly, the trachea was suctioned. And in fact, their mortality was a fraction of the mortality of the patients in the iron lung. So it became clearly evident that positive pressure ventilation for these patients would be a superior technique. And at the same time, there was a ventilator invented by an anesthesiologist by the name of Engstrom, appropriately called the Engstrom ventilator. And that quickly was adopted throughout northern, western, Europe and England, and in some places in the United States, although in the United States, a ventilator called the Merck, M-O-E-R-C-H, ventilator designed by E. Trier Merck, a Danish immigrant to Chicago, who uh, invented this piston-driven constant volume ventilator, which I never saw when I was a medical student because he had he'd just arrived as I was graduating medical school and left Chicago. But I got to use, when I was in the public health service, a Merck ventilator to ventilate post-operative chest patients. So uh, we had our own po positive pressure ventilator. And then Forrest Bird, who just passed away recently, came out and converted his IPPB machine, which was just for treatment of uh, with intermittent positive pressure by mask of individuals with chronic lung disease with bronchodilators, adapted that to be a mechanical ventilator to support ventilation in the operating room or post-operatively. And uh, I met Forrest Bird when I was a, an anesthesiology resident at Penn, 1960. And uh, he came in with our very fabulous chief, Robert Dunning Drips, a rather imperious, somewhat formal man at times. And I was doing a case, very long, boring nerve and muscle reconstruction on a young man who had been in a terrible accident. But he was healthy, and he had refused a spinal, which is what I wanted to give him. But so he's under general anesthesia, and I'm ventilating him by hand. We're now into our third or fourth hour of this, what turned out to be a 12-hour operation. 
and he actually, I found out later, he made a fine recovery, so it was worth the effort. But um, there's not much going on. There's no blood loss because they have a tourniquet on his leg. And I'm squeezing the bag and uh, watching this procedure and uh, Drips and Bird walk in. I, I didn't know Dr. Bird. This six foot four inch gangly man comes in wheeling a green box on a pole and uh, a not very big green box. And uh, underneath it is a bellows and uh, Drips said, John, and he always called me John. He says, this is Dr. Forrest Bird. I said, how do you do, Dr. Bird? And he says, John, is your patient doing well? I said, yes, sir. And he says, uh, would you like some assistance in ventilating his lungs? I said, I would welcome it. We had two ventilators at the time. They were called Jefferson ventilators, both of which were in use in cardiac cases. And so I was, I didn't merit a ventilator. And we were running 20 ORs, so I, I didn't appreciate that. But uh, so uh, he says, disconnect the bag. And I checked my patient and I disconnect the bag and Forrest Bird hooks up his apparatus and he shows me how to increase and decrease positive pressure and how to control the flow rate, how to control the inspired oxygen. And there was an attachment whereby my anesthetic gases were going through. And uh, just then the surgeon says, Jack, we have to take the tourniquet down, tourniquet time. And uh, I said, yes, sir. And uh, I, I decreased the tourniquet, watch the blood pressure, because sometimes that can drop when you do that. And I'm all fussing around for the next five minutes. I look around, there's the bird ventilator, no Dr. Drips, no Dr. Bird, and no manual. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm sitting looking at my first tour of duty with a bird ventilator, but I figured it out. So that was uh, 55 years ago, your first mechanical ventilator. Well, I, I had done, I had, when I was in the U.S. Public Health Service station in Tacoma, Washington, in a chest surgical unit, I was a surgical house officer, and we had this Merck ventilator, and I had learned how to work that, but that was a totally different mechanism. This. The bird ventilator was a pressure preset, pressure limited ventilator. And the thing I was used to was a piston cylinder, very simple thing. And you just cranked in the volume you thought was right. And, uh, but, but the bird ventilator was a great introduction because we used it with infants for years. It was a terrific little ventilator. And, uh, and it was easily adapted to infants, whereas the other Ventilators were pretty clumsy to try to adapt to uh, to small and to preemies or uh, we used it with preemies and newborns. So I got my my. Uh, I didn't go through the IRB with this one. <laughs> In the good old days. <laughs> when we moved from the polio era, um, which actually ended rather abruptly with the Salk vaccine and then the Sabin vaccine. Salk vaccine, 1954, Sabin vaccine, 1957. Thank God it ended. And of course, 
We have Dr. Enders, who was here, to thank for cultivation of the polio virus that enabled the vaccines to be invented. But in 1958, a very important event occurred in the history of medicine, in my view, and that is the creation of a multidisciplinary intensive care unit at Baltimore City Hospital. And the principal person responsible for that was a man named Peter Safar. Peter was born in Vienna, the child of two physicians, 1924. Uh, they survived, although they were Jewish, they survived, uh, uh, they weren't taken away in the Holocaust. They had a rough time, but they were secular Jews and didn't get swept up. And uh, then immediately after the war, uh, Safar, and even towards the end of the war, we went to medical school at the University of Vienna, graduated in 1948. And he uh, pursued, he had a year of pathology there in Vienna and then came to the United States uh, as a surgical resident at Yale through the influence of some American military doctors that knew him who were affiliated with Yale and said, this is a really bright guy and we ought to get him. He, however, uh, really became interested in anesthesia and resuscitation. And he saw that as a future field where he might really contribute. And so he went to the University of Pennsylvania under Dr. Tripps and trained in anesthesiology. And then he went to Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, for a couple of years. Hey, uh, and then Actually, after finishing at Penn, he went and was the chief of anesthesia, the first chief of anesthesia, at the University Hospital in Lima, Peru. Spoke Spanish, very smart guy. He picked up languages, wonderful pianist, fabulous skier. <laughs> he was a man for all seasons. Went down there for a year and then was allowed back into the United States. Didn't have to stay two years. And he joined the staff at Hopkins. After a couple of years, he left Hopkins to become chief of anesthesia at Baltimore City Hospital. And there he very quickly established the first multidisciplinary, really the first pediatric and adult intensive care unit in the United States and, and in North America. He had a pediatric section, not a separate PICU, a pediatric section and an adult section. Pediatricians, pediatric house officers took care of the kids, internists, surgeons took care of the adults, and the anesthesia staff in the unit 24-7 uh, took care of the respiratory problems of both children and adults. After several years, he then was invited to be chairman of a newly created Department of Anesthesia at the University of Pittsburgh. He went there and quickly established it as anesthesia and critical care and established an outstanding program. It's still outstanding program today. Oh, I should mention, at 
Baltimore City Hospital. He also did research on CPR, 58 and 59, indicating that the old arm lift method and back pressure method espoused for years by the Red Cross and that I had learned when I got certified as a, as a lifeguard so I could work at a kid's camp, I thought at the time this is useless, but it was what was done. And he demonstrated it was useless in curarized volunteer house staff and medical students. I did not, I would not have volunteered for that experiment. These are medical students who received curare, had neuromuscular blockade. And then were, res then were ventilated by mouth. They did a few breaths demonstrating with uh, an aneroid type flow, flow meter that nothing was flowing. They were intubated, nothing was flowing. And then they demonstrated with positive pressure ventilation that the gas was flowing, extubated and demonstrated that mouth-to-mouth -mouth breathing or bag-to-mouth breathing worked, mask. And I take it these medical students got some sedation uh, while they got I'm not sure of the blockade. details, I'm not sure. And there wasn't, but house officers and each of the investigators underwent it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No IRB. Right. But he published that and concurrently, within a year, not quite concurrently, but within a year or two, Kuhn Hoven and Jude demonstrated the efficacy of closed chest massage. And that was what brought about the ABCs of CPR that we still have today. Well, we've abandoned the A and the B pretty much. But it's still, for the non-cardiac patient, probably for the child is still important. That's an argument I don't want to get into. But the efficacy of mouth-to-mouth -mouth and bag-to-mouth, mask-bag-to-mouth breathing was demonstrated very clearly. When Safar went to Pittsburgh, he established a research program on CPR. He established a community transport system, and along with colleague in Seattle whose name I've forgotten, they established really the modern mobile ICU transport system that we have appreciated in the 70s and 80s. It got going in the early 60s. And that we didn't, before that, emergency patients were transported in converted hearses. I remember trans, going out on transports from children's to bring in patients crouching in the back of a hearse. Mm and you didn't have any room to do much of anything. This, where you could stand up and you had a mobile ICU with all the tools to support life, that was, that was Safar, that was his. Um, so he, and he also developed, he and Ake Grenvik, a surgeon become fully certified thoracic surgeon in Sweden, also an anesthesiologist, uh, was recruited by Safar, another immigrant too, by the way, <laughs> came from Sweden, and he became director of the ICU 
the medical surgical ICU, but it was adult. And they were running a respiratory care service over at Children's during this era. Um, but but he, I was in touch with him and had met him. And he was a very good friend of my mentor, Leonard Bachman. And they were in touch with each other. So we knew what was happening in Pittsburgh at Children's Hospital in the early 60s. We, we knew what Sapphire was doing. Then I uh, think the other pressure leading to pediatric critical care, we have adult critical care, was pediatric surgery. Again, coming back to Boston, William Ladd, right after World War I, became really the first pediatric surgeon, devoted his entire time to surgery for infants and children, and particularly surgery for the common congenital anomalies. And he trained Robert Gross, who was his successor in the uh, uh, 1940s, and uh, also in 1946, shortly after Gross assumed the lad chair in surgery, C. Everett Coop had finished his residency at Penn and was sent by his professor, Ravden, I.S. Ravden, to Boston. Coop wanted to be a vascular surgeon. And he went in, talked to the professor, as Ravden was addressed. And he said, Professor, I want to be a vascular surgeon. He says, no dice, Coop. He said, we've already selected somebody else. I called Bob Gross this morning. You're going up and train with him. And Coop said, the appropriate thing, he said, yes, sir. <laughs> he got on train, <laughs> packed his family, and they went on a train to Boston. <laughs> the good old days. The good old days. And of course, Ravden picked the right guy. <laughs> Can you tell the story about Dr. Gross? Well, Dr. Gross uh, was a man of strong will, as I understand. I never had the privilege of meeting him even though he, he didn't pass away till long after I was on the scene. I never met him, unfortunately. But he was a man of strong character and a lot of self-confidence, which a surgeon should have. But he wanted to begin to develop pediatric cardiac surgery. Adult cardiac surgery was not even in the offing. Some of the lesions, in, as he saw it, in pediatric lesions were amenable to relatively simple surgical procedures, in his view, particularly patent ductus arteriosus. Ladd said, no dice, you play around with your dogs, and he would create a ductus and tie it so that it could be done. In an animal lab? on In the animal lab, in the dog lab. Well, Ladd was away, a, and I believe she was about eight years old. No, I think, no, she was a bit older, 12 years old. Girl, and I forget she had an Irish name, I forget the name, I used to know it. 
came into Boston Children's Hospital in florid cardiac failure, persistent patent ductus, pulmonary hypertension, and pulmonary edema, dying. Gross takes her to the OR, ligates the ductus, doesn't even divide it, just ligates it. And the girl survives the procedure and the anesthesia, ether anesthesia, the, with a nurse anesthetist named Lanky. Um, and uh, I think Bob Smith, who became chief of anesthesia, maybe hadn't joined the staff yet, or maybe he was away or something. Um, the girl does fine. At the 50th celebration, this is 1938, at the 50th reunion, he, of course, Gross is an elderly man, this patient, now a woman in her 60s, he says to her, it's a good thing you lived or I'd have been a farmer. <laughs> so, Gross uh, Coop uh, was respected Gross's surgical skills and everything, but they did not bond. They did not become close friends, whereas Coop and a lot of the other surgeons did. But uh, Coop, creating a demand for post-op care that now we have all these babies surviving, Gross goes on. Um, in uh, 1945 to repair a coarctation of the aorta, which was also done simultaneously by a surgeon in Sweden. And then the advent that same year of Blaylock and Tausig and the Blaylock shunt opens that whole field. So all of a sudden we have uh, pre- and post-op care of cardiac patients, of patients with congenital anomalies, diaphragmatic hernia, uh, post-operative tracheosophageal fistula with pneumonia, uh, post-operative patients with omphalocylgastroschisis and elevated diaphragms who are in respiratory failure from a compliance and reduced lung volume basis. So there's this demand for post-operative intensive care. In my view, the key event in neonatology that triggered the development of pediatric critical care was the success of Maria Delavoria and Paul Swire and Henry Levison in ventilating babies, moribund babies, with severe respiratory distress syndrome moribund premature infants with severe respiratory distress syndrome and then achieving a survival of seven out of 20 patients who met, all 20 met the criteria of death is inevitable. This was at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto? It. Yes. And uh, they published their work in 1964 and that was very encouraging. I got to visit them in 64 after, or as they were publishing this, and they were very receptive. I went with 
because I was doing part-time neonatology at that point and, uh, and doing research on respiratory distress syndrome with Thomas Boggs at Penn. And uh, uh, we went up to uh, uh, Grant Morrow, who subsequently became chairman of pediatrics at uh, Ohio State. Grant and I went up to see what these folks were doing. We had heard their paper at a meeting. The, the uh, landmark paper hadn't been published yet. And they were very receptive. We stayed several days watching their technique so forth, and took it back to Penn and, and helped us. They were using the bird ventilator too. <laughs> However, they were doing many more tracheotomies than we would like to do. And I felt that it'd be better to use a smaller endotracheal tube and have a little leak and because I felt maybe we could buy and We did no tracheotomies, those kids, except the ones that went in long-term BPD with chronic respiratory failure had to be ventilated for weeks and months, but there, we hadn't encountered them yet. So they were pivotal in showing us that babies, no matter how small, could be ventilated and survive. And, and then this is going on not just in North America, this is going on in Western Europe, the United Kingdom. And pediatric ICUs emerged in Western Europe, my knowledge about what was going on in Asia and the rest of the world in South America is very fuzzy. And I don't think there was any progress in Africa, except in South Africa there was. Um, but the uh, first pediatric ICU, which we have a record, was at the Children's Hospital in Gothenburg, Sweden, the third largest city in Sweden. Uh, and the person who organized that and directed it was Goran Haglund, Goran Haglund, who was chief of anesthesia there. And he set up what he called an emergency care unit. But it was really a pediatric ICU. It wasn't just, they didn't bring in patients off the street. It was 12 beds and very advanced thinking. He, uh, uh, had a respiratory therapist, he had dedicated nursing staff, and he had uh, multidisciplinary pediatric people rotating through, and he had pediatric house staff there. Pediatric house staff or anesthesia house staff there 24-7. Uh, and he had very substantial, out very good outcomes. So he demonstrated it, but he failed to publish. He published this as an abstract report in a Scandinavian anesthesia journal, and there it lay for 21 years until it was published in a neonatology review, even though it wasn't, he had some neonates, but it was, uh, he never got the recognition except through one of his students, Barbara Ekstrom, happened to visit us and other people in Europe and talked about Hagland. And Hagland passed away at too young age, I think 60 or something. So, Dr. Downs, could you tell us about 
um, starting the intensive, the pediatric intensive care unit at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in 1967. Well, we had, as I think I mentioned before, a respiratory care service that we started in 1964. And we had patients in the recovery room. We had patients in various sections of wards that required intensive monitoring and or mechanically, mechanical ventilation. And then with uh, cooperation from Dr. Koop, from my chief who was pushing this, Dr. Bachman, and the pediatric department, we opened a six-bed multidisciplinary unit in January of 1967 with a dedicated nursing staff. I was the medical director. We had a fellow in the unit available at all times. Uh, these were pediatric anesthesia fellows. Um, and uh, a dedicated nursing staff, respiratory therapists who uh, either worked in covered recovery room or they and the unit, so they were readily available and they weren't off in some far corner of the hospital. We had a blood gas lab adjacent, so that we and we could do other laboratory work, electrolytes, and uh, simple blood studies, so that. We had the essentials. We only had six beds because that's all the space was available. Uh, we uh, had a very interesting group of people, particularly my, my mentor and colleague, Mike Bachman, was for research projects. We did research projects on asthma, bronchiolitis, uh, research project on uh, respiratory failure due to Guillain-Barre syndrome and the like. And we, uh, and particularly in pulmonary function of children following cardiac surgery, correction of tetralogy of Fallot and, and uh, correction of total anomalous venous return. So we had a research arm to this. Uh, we had a lot of cooperation from our cardiac surgeon, John Waldhausen, from our ENT surgeon who was there anytime we needed him for airway problems or general advice. He was also a board-certified pediatrician, Sylvan Stuhl. So we had a, a cohort there of colleagues that you need for an enterprise like this. What we needed was more beds and more room. And uh, we struggled along with the six beds until uh, 1974 when we moved to our new uh, Children's Hospital uh, in, uh, on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania and next to the University Hospital. But early on, we encountered a couple of things. One was chronic respiratory failure evolved out of our success at handling acute respiratory failure in patients with respiratory distress syndrome, and in patients with some of the congenital anomalies, particularly diaphragmatic hernia and omphalocele uh, gastroschisis. So uh, that was a, uh, a lesson to be learned, that uh, trouble is neither created nor destroyed, it only changes its form. However, the number developing these chronic conditions uh, were small in relation to the number that were surviving and being liberated from support. The second thing, of course, was 
after our unit started, units evolved and we were in touch with many of them and some of them were started. The second unit was at Pittsburgh Children's with the enthusiastic support of Peter Safar and Stefan Kempschulte, who trained earlier on with Safar and then trained with us in pediatric intensive care. And he became the first director of that unit. And uh, uh, units developed at Yale, at uh, Washington Children's, at uh, essentially, uh, by 1974, at least a dozen units were around the country, including Toronto and the Mass General Hospital, which opened its unit in 1971. Children's Hospital in Boston continued with the model of the respiratory care service, and they had some very dedicated people, but they didn't have a real ICU. Um, and uh, in 1975, uh, Hopkins hired a, an alumnus of your programs here, well, Mass General programs mainly, uh, who, uh, who set up the whole pediatric ICU down uh, at Hopkins and uh, Mark Rogers, and that became a very successful enterprise. Uh, by 1974, we thought when we had a 20-bed unit, we were going to no longer need any more beds. Within a year, we had to open an additional 10 beds, mainly because of the development of chronic conditions or that even if there wasn't a chronic condition, the child needed weeks and weeks and weeks of intensive care support, sometimes months, before they could return to an ordinary, regular inpatient care unit and then go home. Uh, so we wound up with a 30-bed ICU, and it was full most of the time. Uh, the other major event that occurred was the evolution of infant cardiac surgery. We were not on the initial cutting edge. You were here in Boston, and they were in New Zealand and a few other places. But we could see that one coming. And uh, indeed, uh, one of your alumni uh, came to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Bill Norwood, in 1984, and we established a subunit uh, within the pediatric intensive care complex for cardiac patients. And uh, we now have a independent 20-bed cardiac ICU. So very quickly, pedi uh, pediatric critical care followed the pathway of most medical specialties, became more specialized, and spread around the United States very quickly. In organized medicine, uh, the criteria for what is a pediatric ICU and how it should be organized and governed was established in the very early 80s by the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the Academy of Pediatrics under leadership from Russell Raffley from our group and Peter Holbrook, who by that time was heading up the uh, pediatric ICU at Washington National Children's Hospital. And then in the mid-'80s, we had the ACGME recognition of fellowships, and then in 87, subboard certification in P 
pediatric critical care by the American Board of Pediatrics. So it, it didn't take long from 67 to 87 to go from a fledgling outfit that had no recognition by any board or anything to sub-board certification, national standards, and pediatric intensive care units throughout the country and throughout Western Europe as well. Uh, developing countries, Eastern Europe, developing countries in Latin America, some very good units in Latin America, Mexico, uh, very fine units in Israel, in South Africa, uh, and gradually developing around the world. Um, I am very grateful to uh, the Swedes for getting it off the ground, uh, the French for having a very progressive care unit, Jolie and Uo at the St. Vincent de Paul Children's Hospital in the early 60s had a 20-bed ICU. I visited that with the financial support from the U.S. taxpayer via the National Institutes of Health, but it was, a, it was worth it. I brought back tremendous ideas and a uh, commitment that we got to do this at our hospital. And uh, I think that the field now faces its success, and that is that there is great need, in my view, for dealing with the long-term outcomes of not just chronic respiratory failure, but the long-term disabilities, nervous system primarily, that may result from success at saving a life. And I think, and the long-term respiratory disability. And I, th I would hope that some pediatric critical care physicians will provide the link to the neurologists, to the pulmonologists, to the other, to the oncologists, for the long term, because we're part of a continuum. And I think the second thing is we have to be sure that with all of this high technology and tremendous things that we can do for children, and through genetics, through pharmacology, through the research that's coming forward now with, with uh, our ability to gather and analyze data, that we don't lose compassion. That compassion for the child and compassion for the family. I had a son in 1970, eight years old, on his mother's 40th birthday, went into status asthmaticus, severe. Brought him from home to Children's Hospital. And uh, fortunately, Leonard Bachman was on call. He, he saw him in the ER, said he has to be in the ICU, brought him into the ICU. He had a PCO2 of 65. Mm -hmm. He had PO2 of 100 on 50% oxygen. And we had an asthma score of 0 to 10, 10 being moribund, and he was a 7. And he said, Jack, it's either on the ventilator or he goes on the research protocol with isoprol. At the time, we had a research protocol with isoprol, intravenous isoprol. My wife is sitting there. I'm sitting there thinking, I hope I wake up pretty soon from this nightmare. 
what's going on, you know. And, uh, but it was real time, and I'll never forget that. Turns out he went on the protocol. Joanne and I signed for, and I had written the protocol. Joanne and I signed this protocol. I never in my life thought I'd be signing it for my own son. And we're religious people. We were praying, and, and he did fine. But he was in there for four days. And uh, he was pretty woozy when I went in to see him, but his PCO2 had come down very quickly into the 40s, high 40s, low 50s. And uh, he brought up some mucus plugs. And, but I'll tell you, that is scary to have your kid in the ICU. And I think we need to be sure that our colleagues and our house staff understand that as they come into this field and that we don't lose that essential of medicine, compassion. Well, Dr. Jack Downs, um, I know I speak for colleagues around the world uh, in saying thank you for all that you have done to really establish our field and advance our field from your work uh, in the early 1960s with the NIH on respiratory failure in infants and children to establishing with your colleagues the first PICU in the United States in 1967, guiding it all the way over the next several decades and for your work that you've been doing since that time. Um, it's appreciation uh, of many colleagues around the world when I say thank you for being here today and sharing this well, with us. Thank you. It's been a privilege, Jeff. Uh, privilege. And uh, I couldn't have done it without a family that supported me, a wife. And I couldn't have done it without colleagues like Russ Raffley and the others, Len Bachman. Terrific. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.